Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Mark chapter 3. I'm just going to read this to you, starting in verse 20. It says this. So one time Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. And soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of control, they said. People probably said that about Jesus a lot. I could imagine. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. And Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided against itself will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. All this talk of evil spirits and casting him out, I'm wondering if maybe this is a Mother's Day message after all. So I'm reading this morning from the New Living Translation, and that very first line, verse 20, one time he entered a house, um, that word uh, does literally translate as house, but when it's preceded by a certain Greek preposition that it happens to be in this story, um, that word is not rented house, it's rented home in a possessional type of way. And so some of your Bibles will better translate this phrase like this, Then Jesus went home. Then Jesus went home. I think it's important that we get this because, saints, when we invite the Lord to live in our heart, it's because we're acknowledging the fact that this is where he always wanted to be, that this was his home. We were his home. Even when building this grand temple, Solomon said as he was as he was going through the dedication of this temple, he, he quotes the father to his father, David. He quotes God as having said, I never chose a city. I only chose a man. My heart was never to be in a temple. You see it when he makes the Davidic covenant with King David. You see David saying, well, I live in this fancy palace and you're still out in this tent, God, because of this ark. And God said, it's so interesting that you see that. I never asked for a temple. I never wanted a temple. I only wanted you. I never chose Jerusalem. You chose Jerusalem, David. I chose you. When we invite him to come into our hearts, to come into our lives, we are inviting him home. We use churchy words like the Corinthian passage that we are, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But what it means is he wants to reside here. He wants to make this his home. And so when we read a passage like this that says, then Jesus came home, my prayer is that it it catches our attention. 
that we start to take note, wait a minute, what is Jesus like when he goes home? Well, he's probably not that different than any one of us when we go home. Some of you are really good at like leaving work at work. Some of you, your office never recovered after COVID. And so it's in your dining room or it's at home. And so you've been working out of coffee shops and coffee tables uh, and just, you know, doing a distance thing. It gets really hard to separate your life from your work. And I think in a lot of ways, it's tough for us to shift gears in how we perceive the Lord. You see, even though this is home for him, even though we want this to be home for him, we like the idea of this being home for him. When he comes here and takes up residence, we don't really want him to take the work hat off. We don't want him to leave work at work. We want him to go to work in us, don't we? If you don't believe me, just listen to your prayers. If you don't believe me, just take, take uh, notice of when people come to church and why. And, and American Christianity, we're so, we're so plagued with consumerism and it's like, well, if stuff doesn't make sense to me, if, if I can't make sense of the bad things in the world or the hard things or the terrible things that are happening in a, other countries or the random acts of violence, if I can't do the math and come up with a reason good enough why, then I'm gonna let God be God and I'm gonna do me. And then when we need God or when we wish things looked a different way in our lives, where, you know, people say uh, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Because in those moments of desperation, we want the Lord to go to work. Notice what happens when Jesus comes home. It says the crowds are pressing in on him. It's kind of like, does anybody get work calls when you're at home? Am I the only one that does that? Thank you, pastor. Okay, people in ministry, yeah. Daniel, I get, see that hand in the back? Yeah, there we go. Uh, that's that's kind of, I'm thinking about, to be honest with you, I'm thinking about, you know, people will, when they too many people know their number, um, they'll change their number. I'm thinking about not changing my number, just getting rid of the old one and not getting one. I'm, I'm considering just like, I don't really need a phone, right? But I do, and I'm just kidding. But I might leave my phone here instead of take it home with me because Ashley's like, who's calling? You don't want to know. The deal is leaving work at work is a great idea. And we, and we create screen time filters and we, we, we set boundaries in place. And some of us are really good. Some of you guys, you leave your phone on your kitchen counter on a charger and then you go up to bed at night. So, you know, you don't have that, the, the wireless charger like radiation running into your head like I do because it's on my nightstand all night long. But either way, However it is that we separate what the Lord wants to do and what we're asking him to do, I think we have a hard time doing it. I believe that, that when Jesus comes home, when he's at home in us, it's not about his productivity anymore. It's about his presence. When I, when I go home, like I don't, I don't, it's not about accountability for my job anymore. When you go home, you're off the clock. It doesn't mean that you don't do things that look like work. It just means that you're doing them because you love your home. Is anybody doing landscaping this time of year? Y'all are out there. You're weeding, you're mulching, you're hoeing, you're tilling and plowing. There's a lot of farmers in this church, right? And you're, you're, we're, I'm running 
irrigation lines so that all our plants don't die like they did last year when we went away for a week. And I'm out there and it's, it's a lot of work, but it's not work because it's like for my yard and I want it to look beautiful. And so it doesn't feel like work, but the productivity is really a result of me just being home. It's amazing what you can do when you're actually there. And I'll tell you this morning, it's amazing what Jesus can actually get done in your life when he's actually invited in, when he's at home, because his presence gets things done. Not because we're praying for it, not because we're begging and pleading and asking for it, not because we're making empty promises at an altar. God, if you do this, I swear I'll never do that again. (laughs) It's my favorite. I've been there yesterday. No, he came home, but he was so pressed from a crowd that wanted him to work. When he's at home in us, we should be serving him, not waiting for him to serve us, saints. See, there's a big difference between satisfying and occupying. And I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. Jesus satisfies the needs of our soul. But that's a product of his faithfulness. Jesus satisfying our soul is his faithfulness, but him occupying our heart is his fellowship. And that's what he's after with us. It's a big difference than just doing your diligence, going to church, counting beads, and saying some prayer you learned 25, 35, 105 years ago. That's work. That is not what the Lord wants with us. That's not what he called us to. And I'm not saying there aren't things about our faith walk that will feel like hard work, but the hardest thing that we have to do is check our flesh. The hardest thing that we have to do is allow the Holy Spirit and his conviction to to hold us accountable for just having fellowship, just living in that brotherhood with the Lord, in that intimacy. Jesus would rather have dinner with you then just be used for his power to heal you. Well, God, look, you get to show off. If you do this miracle on me, I've heard this prayer a million times, let it be used for a mighty testimony for your glory. And sometimes I hear the Lord, I, I, I want to just be like, could your life be used? Like, even if God doesn't do that for a mighty testimony of his power and his glory? And sometimes I see the people who've experienced the miracles and from a few feet away, you wouldn't even know they knew the Lord. Why? Because he satisfied something. He met a need. He paid a debt. But the fellowship was never there to back up his home within us. Jesus would rather have dinner with you than just be used for his power to heal you, fix you, or sort out your weird theological convictions. All of those things, I believe the Lord does all of those things, but I believe that he does them as a byproduct of brotherhood, as a byproduct of just wanting to dwell with you. That's what he loved to do with his disciples. See, when he went somewhere, it was this constant, like, the crowd pressing in on him, like it was here at his home, the crowd pressing in. What can we get out of Jesus? Can we get him to do a miracle? We just want to see a miracle. Lord, show us something. Show us something. Show us something. But with his disciples, for all their faults and failures, one thing I love about his disciples is we don't really see them asking for miracles. 
If you follow his disciples, the ones who were, were the closest to him, they're not really begging and pleading for God to do. Does that mean they didn't have needs in their lives? No, of course they had needs. Of course they had needs. But they were more aware, more aware than they were of the needs in their lives. They were aware that they were already in fellowship with the meter of every need. And so the concern wasn't there because the intimacy was. So this, uh, this um, unwillingness or inability to let Jesus just be at home, just do stuff because he's home, it creates a countermeasure. And while that's really deep and elaborate and complex, Mark sums it up in like one line. Because the crowds were pressing in on him, so much so that he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Verse 21 is the countermeasure. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind. It's interesting, isn't it? The countermeasure. The countermeasure. It's always by those who are closest to Jesus. We see the ones who aren't close to Jesus and we say, all you do is want. All you do is come in when, you have, when you're needy. All you do, you just want to use the Lord. You just want to use his power. You just, wanna, you just want some peace because you're finally, your life is in chaos because you've been running all this time. And that's what you want. And so we look at the Jonas of the world. We look at the, the folks even who come to church and, and we make judgment calls. We say the Lord would never do will work in your life until you get this straight or until you figure that out. And I love uh, the Greek word here. When it says they tried to, when it, when it says they tried to take him away, the Greek word there is they tried to take him into custody. His own family and disciples. Now we think Jesus needs to be nervous about being taken into custody by the Pharisees and the people who are actually gonna crucify him on a cross. But sometimes the ones who are closest to Jesus end up crucifying him on a schedule. Jesus, it's time to eat, and you haven't stopped to eat yet. I'm from the South, and in the South, people kind of like never stop eating, all right? So they just kind of eat all day. I kind of, I'm like that a little bit. And I just kind of just, I want like handfuls of things, you know, snacks and like junk food, truck stop cuisine. I just want stuff in my hands, in my pocket, in my desk drawer, in my glove compartment, in road cases. When we used to travel, I had like food stashed in every road case. You would have thought I lived through the Great Depression or something. And uh, not that that's funny. Um, but I, but I, 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 I see, we, I moved up here and you see up here, it's like more regimented. Like a meal is something important. And so people like prioritize meals they you know it's it's just a different world and there is a, a strong portuguese culture here um, that it's very important to those folks to make sure that people eat when it's time to eat and so there's food there ready for you why because it's time to eat and so i i feel like some of jesus's family was portuguese because they're watching the people who just want Jesus to work for them and aren't willing to put in the work themselves. And they're saying, uh-uh, not today. Jesus, it's time to eat. And so they bring him over. They're trying to bring him into 
Custody, the Greek says. Custody. You know what that word means? It means they're trying to take control of him, take power over him, to lead him away from, yes, a place that, that is missing the point of what it means for him to be home, and they just want, 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 but they're denying Jesus, or they're seeking to. They don't actually pull it off. They're, they're trying to deny Jesus his right to work with woundedness. And saints, I want us to be careful of that. I think sometimes it's easy for us to create categories and to put people in boxes and to say, well, you know, God needs to do this in this person's life and God needs to do that in this person's life and Jesus needs to do this in this person's life, but first he has to eat lunch. We want him to stick to a schedule, don't we? We don't like the unpredictable Jesus. We don't like the spontaneous Jesus. Most often because it's that unplanned stop in the itinerary that seems to interrupt him from getting to where we want him to go. I think of the man whose daughter was dying and Jesus stops to minister to the woman with the issue of blood. Mid-miracle. While this man's daughter is on her deathbed, here's Jesus. Uh, maybe you don't understand the urgency of the hour. Maybe you don't understand. I'm telling you, this is the end. You have to come. And he feels a tug and turns around. It's like, are you kidding me? We're in the middle of something here. Back on schedule. Saints, I think we have to be careful. We try to take Jesus in custody, try to hold him hostage to negotiate desired results for people because we think we know what people need. Jesus works with woundedness. Amen? Anybody grateful for that this morning? Good. There's a ditch on either side of that road. Let's make sure we don't fall on either side. Because at the end of the day, it's really the same ditch. The ones who are closest to Jesus, the ones who never miss, uh, they, they, they never miss a show, they never miss a, a, a teaching moment, they never miss a whatever. Sometimes those people end up creating a role for Jesus themselves. And most often it's the ones who were gonna be at that table who don't want Jesus to miss it his disciples. Good. So let's keep going. He gets to this teaching and I think it's really good. He says, how can a Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. That's like one of those one-liners that has made its way into so many different arenas and facets and people have used it to, uh, to drive a stake in the ground for unity, uh, really in anything, not just the church, in any organization, anywhere. Um, but he says this, he says, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? See, this isn't just true of Satan, Jesus is teaching us. It's not just true of families, it's true of churches and the individuals that make them up. And I'm convinced that the same reason why the church has had trouble standing well, it's the same reason why individual believers have had trouble standing, because we are divided. We are divided. Even when we're at our most unified in a corporate whole, so often there's division inside us, in that home that Jesus is supposed to be at. 
And saints, the division looks different for all of us. But what looks the same is this word stand. A kingdom divided can't stand. You see, that word stand, it's interesting. It really, it means to cause a person to keep his place. Not just stand up, sit down, kneel, lie down. No, it's to stand like stand firm, stand strong. To cause a person to keep his place. And I wonder sometimes if we were going to be real honest about taking inventory of ourselves, if, if we'd be willing to admit that we've lost our place. The church has lost her place. It also means to weigh for value, like in ancient times when they would weigh out precious metals for commerce and transactions. This word stand means like, well, that's not enough. It won't stand. That value won't stand. It's the kind of stand that, that when the hand of God wrote on Nebuchadnezzar's palace that you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, Babylon is going to fall. It will not stand. And finally, my, my favorite breakdown of this word is that this word stand also signifies the quality the quality of one who does not hesitate or waver. And that perhaps is the most convicting description of believers today. The quality of one who does not hesitate or waver. A kingdom divided can't stand. A kingdom divided hesitates and wavers. A kingdom divided is lacking the confidence required to move forward in obedience. A kingdom divided can't just trust the Lord without measuring doubt. I think of us today and how often we're, we, we, we spend not just hours or minutes in prayer, but days and months and years and seasons of our lives trying to discern the will of God. Well, did, was that really God that said that or was that the, we're divided. It's not, it's not the angel on one shoulder and the, the devil on the other like it is for Heathcliff. It's, it's ourselves. This kingdom is divided and it wages war against itself, exchanging blows until somebody wins. But saints, here's the deal. No matter who wins that fight, you lose. Well, Zach, I didn't because I didn't give in to, you know, that or I, I, I did finally do what God called me to do. So no, I didn't. You did it 10 years later. Hesitation, wavering, these are marks of division. Saints, Jesus is so clear in John 10. He says what? He says he's a good shepherd, and he says that his sheep, what? Know his voice. What does that mean? It means if you're a child of God, it means if you have accepted his leadership and his shepherdship in your life, then you know his voice. Your spirit knows his voice. So do you see a, a sheep that knows a shepherd's voice when he's saying, hey, come on into the fold. There's danger out there. There's wolves out there. There's a bear. There's a lion. There's a whatever. My sheep know my voice. They're comforted by my voice and they follow the sound of my voice. There's no wavering or hesitation like maybe I should risk it with the wolves. 
And yet, we see a lot of believers who look more beat up, black-eyed and bloody-lipped. A church today of ones who are divided and, and our fruitfulness is indicative of that division. I know I keep saying church here and I want to be clear that I think God is doing something incredible here. And my indictment this morning is on the capital C church. Um, it's not a shame on you spanking to this church. I, I look out across this room and sometimes it's hard to, to preach hard messages because I know of how many incredibly faithful people there are here. If nothing else, let even for you, super faithful, super submissive, unwavering, without hesitation, I think of that one disciple, Thomas, doubting Thomas. I think of Thomas and how there was doubt. There was an opposing force. He was divided. And while he wanted to believe, and I believe he wanted to believe that everything Jesus had said was true and that it had come to pass, there was doubt. He was still weighing into the situation. There was doubt. And so he said this out of his mouth, until I put my finger in the hole, until I touch the scars myself, I hesitate. I waver, I won't believe. I stood on the front porch of what will be our new sanctuary in a few months, Lord willing. I stood on the front porch of those steps on Easter Sunday of 2019 and I said, God is calling this church to greater faith. It didn't have anything to do with the Easter message uh, it just was random. I hadn't written it in my notes. It was just this whole word from the Lord on faith and greater faith and believing for greater things. And now at that point, we just thought we were gonna be renting that space for a little while while we built a building. And I've been amazed at how this church has moved forward in faith. I've been incredibly blessed at how we've responded to that call to come up higher to believe for more. But saints, Thomas had watched God do incredible things through Christ Jesus. He had followed him around and bore witness to him, raising the dead and, and limbs growing back and the lame and the lepers and the blind and the deaf and the dumb and the mute and God freeing all of them from all of this stuff. And yet he was divided. My prayer is that if there's any hesitation in us, if there's any unwavering in us, that we would be brought back to our spirit who's one with the Lord, who knows his voice, who does not doubt or even challenge what the shepherd says, but who simply obeys. So, when there's one part that serves the Lord and one part that doesn't, they just keep exchanging blows. Whether that's in a church, hear horror stories of churches. That's one thing I love about a church. We don't vote here, you know, where it's like, well, 51% wanted the bathrooms to be blue and 49%, but we needed a two thirds vote. 
I'm not trying to brick on church politics, but I am. The point is this. We get ourselves in a mess when we start taking sides. That's one of our first things that we do in marriage counseling is we say there are no two sides to this. This is not you versus you or you versus you. This isn't one spouse gathering witnesses together to, to speak on their defense in a courtroom. No, no, no. The two became one. The two became one. So whatever hesitation, whatever reluctance, whatever wavering there is, is not of the Lord, and it's certainly not a part of this covenant. In like manner, the covenant that we have for Jesus calls for the same confidence, the same faithfulness. And finally, he says this, I love it. He says, let me illustrate it further. Who's powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Some of your Bibles say, in order to enter the strong man's house, you have to first bind the strong man. You have to bind the strong man. It makes sense, doesn't it? Here we go, back to getting beat up again. Because we love to enter. And we love to plunder. But so often we do so ill-equipped to bind, ill-equipped to bind, to really uh, take authority over. Jesus says it, only someone stronger to make sure that we're strong enough to enter the, the uh, occasion or the equation that the, the Lord wants us to enter. It requires strength on our parts, saints. And here's the deal. The reason that Jesus is saying, the reason I can bind the strong man is because I'm stronger. The reason I can cast out some demon or some devil that's in somebody is because I'm stronger. And the only way you're ever going to do it is if you do it in my name. And that's why the word says that anything you do in my name will be done. Well, here's the problem. It also requires strength on the part of the believer. Strength in what? Just, do I have to memorize more scripture? Do I have to go to church more? Do I have to what? No. The strength has to exist in that fellowship, in that brotherhood. Look at the, there's a story in the New Testament about these brothers. They're called the seven sons of Sceva. And the seven sons of Sceva are out casting demons out of people in Jesus' name. But then something terrible happens. They cast out the demons and the demons come out and they speak to the seven sons. And they say, Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. But who are you? And then they attack. There was division in those young men. There was division. You see, they liked the satisfying part of Jesus, but they had not yet arrived at the occupying part of Jesus. They wanted him to work but they weren't willing to accept his residence within them. So they didn't have the relationship to back up the authority that they were trying to operate in. And it ended up being worse for them than it was at the beginning. In order to enter effectively or plunder productively, we have to bind boldly. <laughs> if you need an extra B there to go along with us. Anyway, you know who you are. We love to enter. I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole. 
There's a couple of people in here, another one. We're going to bring that one back. Don't worry. We love to go in. We love to take it back, neglecting the fact that we have to be strong in our walk with the Lord. We have to be strong in our intimacy with him. We've got to know him. We've got to be one with him. If we're going to go in and start throwing around his name. Anybody ever try to get it somewhere by like name dropping? You're like, I'm a friend of the band. <laughs> try to get backstage. Anybody end up in jail doing something like that? Okay. We like to drop names, don't we? We love to drop Jesus' name. And in Jesus' mighty name, shut up. You got the relationship to go with that? Do you have the covenant to back that up? Do you have the relational equity in the Lord to really bind things on earth and have them be bound in spiritual places? To release things in this realm and have them be released in spiritual places? Would you stand to your feet? He closes this, this little teaching piece with some other interesting news. It's a different spin on things because we're so accustomed to Jesus talking like, like all this story, the whole point of the gospel is forgiveness and redemption and forgiveness and redemption and forgiveness and redemption. And no matter what you've done, it's not too big for God. And Jesus drops this bomb, this little cherry, right before he uh, drops the mic and leaves. He says, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this, why? Because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit, but he wasn't, he was possessed by the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy? What is the unforgivable sin? That's one of those like controversial questions that pastors always get from time to time. Pastor, what is the, un I just want to make sure that I haven't committed it. Because if I have, and I'm going to hell for sure, then I'm going to live differently. You know who you are. Nobody says that out loud, but that's what they're thinking. What is the unforgivable sin? Well, what Jesus is pointing out here is that there is a spirit of blasphemy that seeks to deny God's works from really being done at God's hand. And so it looks at things and judges things that are done by none other than the Spirit of God. And instead, it credits Satan with that work. That's not God. That wouldn't be God. God wouldn't do that. We've got to be careful. I'm not gonna tell you if you've ever messed this thing up or whatever, then but I think there's some intentionality to it. I think that there is some, a lifestyle of it. But I think as believers, sometimes we can get into really toxic patterns of looking at Holy Spirit inspired things, Holy Spirit empowered things. And because they make us uncomfortable. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because they make us awkward because they shift the attention sometimes in the room, we decide that they're not of God. How can we call the sanctifier unclean?
How can we call the comforter uncomfortable? If we really knew him, we would never make that mistake. If we really knew him, and saints this morning, this is an invitation to really, really know him beyond what you can explain, beyond what makes sense, but to know him in a way where all of his power is yours. That's the relationship that he wants with us. In fact, as Jesus is leaving his disciples, he says, even greater things than anything I've done, you'll do. Why? Because that same power that's in me is gonna operate through you. And the world is gonna mock it. And the religious are gonna blaspheme it. But make no mistake, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If you're in this place this morning, and that turmoil is there. We're gonna let everybody go in just a minute. But before you do, if you're in this room and you say, Zach, I don't have that relationship. I've never really had that relationship. I prayed a prayer at an altar at a Billy Graham crusade in 1970 something. Or I, I, uh, you know, I, I filled out a prayer card at a church one time and said, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Prayed a prayer that sounded like that. Somebody told me to pray. But if it didn't come with power, if it didn't change your life, I wanna invite you into that relationship this morning because that's the one he wants with you, not one of satisfying, one of occupying. As we uh, close with this song and this prayer, if that's you and you're in this place this morning, I wanna invite you to step out of your seat, meet me at this altar. And saints, after we pray, if you need to get out of here, go. God bless you. Have the best Mother's Day of your life. We'll see you next week. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit in us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us not just to engage in a business transactional relationship with you, but Lord, in a, in a, in a brotherhood, in a fellowship and an intimacy with you to be one with you where you're at home in us. God, where everything that we need done is, is done as a simple side effect, a byproduct of that covenant. And so God, I pray over that mindset that, that holds you in that place, that inability to shift gears, to let you just be at rest in us and us to rest in you. God, I pray that you would Lord, that you would reveal to us areas of division in our lives, maybe areas of division in our church, areas of division in our homes. God, places where, um, Lord, where, where there's wavering or where there's hesitation. God, places where you as our shepherd, you've called us into a new season. You've called us into a new operation of new gifts. But Lord, there's a wavering. There's a doubting there. Lord, we say this morning and we declare it, we believe, help our unbelief, God. Whatever part of our flesh still remains, whatever doubt remains, whatever hesitation, Lord, this morning, let it bow, let it surrender and submit to your spirit within us that continues to go boldly in that path you've called for us. So Lord, we trust you and we love you. God, I pray that our eyes would be open to see what it is that your spirit is doing in our lives. And we say, even so, come quickly. 
we need more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.